Well, hello, saints, sinners, and all those in between. Welcome back to another episode of Chronicles Unleashed, where people detour from the road to redemption and struggle to find their way back. As you'll discover, the characters in our fictional stories, as well as the people in the real-life sagas, long for the same things, understanding, forgiveness, and mercy. You may even recognize pieces of your own life. Every week, Chronicles Unleashed will bring you tales of love, life, and human error. You'll be relieved to know that your own mistakes aren't as bad as you think. And even if they are, someone has done it before and been forgiven. It is said that how you act in a crisis is who you really are. Last week, in part two of our fictional story, The Good Book and the Book, Pastor Saul and Lady Lou were surprised to learn that their satellite offices had been raided by the feds. While the family came together, individual reactions to the crisis varied. This week, Chronicles Unleashed focuses on the responses of three actual couples in crisis. Our first story highlights a couple who came under intense media scrutiny before they had even been married a year. We call this story, Save That Date? Before John Wesley Dean III was an investment banker and online columnist, he was counsel to President Richard Milhouse Nixon. Before Maureen Dean, also known as Mo, was an author and stockbroker, she was a flight attendant. Neither John nor Mo were strangers to the wedding aisle. Both had talked the talk and walked the walk before. John had been previously married and had a son. Mo had been married twice before, once to a Dallas Cowboy scout who neglected to tell her that he had not divorced his first wife, and then to her high school sweetheart who died two years into the marriage, leaving her a widow. Nonetheless, what they previously experienced could never have prepared these two veterans for what they would face during their stroll down the aisle toward happily ever after. On November 13th, 1970, Friday the 13th, a day some would say was an indicator that bad luck was looming in their future. A friend of theirs, Barry Goldwater Jr., introduced Mo to John Wesley Dean III. Oblivious to the date, they hit it off, and a couple of days later, she accepted John's offer to join him in the Virgin Islands for Thanksgiving. A little over a month after that, Mo followed her heart and moved to Washington, D.C. to be with John. They briefly lived together and exchanged vows on Friday, October 13th, 1972. In less than nine months after their wedding, John was testifying before the Senate Watergate Committee about one of the biggest scandals in the history of the United States. There had been a break-in at the Democratic National Committee headquarters in the Watergate complex, and it was committed by burglars sent by people in the Nixon administration. The investigation of this incident was underway. 
During these hearings, Dean admitted that he and others tried to block the investigation and that the president knew and approved of it. That was the scandal that rocked the nation and ultimately caused the resignation of President Nixon. A well-coiffed Mo supported John by sitting at the hearings every day when he testified. But privately, John had difficulty expressing his feelings to Mo, which led her to lock herself in the bathroom and threaten to cut her wrists. Though she just wanted attention and was trying to scare him, she regretted her behavior. Later, she said, it gave me the reassurance I needed at the moment, but I wouldn't recommend that behavior to anyone else. Ultimately, the Watergate experience strengthened their relationship and their trust in each other. Although John lost his law license and was confined for four months, he learned to confide in Mo. There's an openness and support we didn't know existed, Mo said. If he's upset about something, he'll sit down and talk to me about it. I don't even have to say anything, like a psychiatrist. In discussing things, he finds an answer. This resilient couple had to start over again before they ever really began. Not long after John served his time in jail, the pair moved from the Watergated community of Washington, D.C., reinvented themselves, and got out of debt. Mo got her stockbroker license and has written books. She's no longer depressed, and she does not dwell on the past and is happy that this unfortunate time in history is behind them. John never pursued getting his license reinstated. Instead, he focused on writing, accepting speaking engagements, and developing ethics courses. With regard to Friday's falling on the 13th, it is not the date. It is your decisions that determine your future. It is your perspective and attitude that will get you through the rough times. After 45 years of beating the odds, the deans are living proof of that. Our next couple is Filipino and met when they were nine years old through their fathers, who were both senators. Years later, they met again when Corey finished college in the United States and came back to go to law school in the Philippines. Imagine that this seemingly trite love story evolves into an international movement. Such was the case with Ninoy and Cory Aquino. We call this story, Not a Desperate Housewife. At the time Cory returned to the Philippines, Ninoy was dating a beautiful woman, but he was impressed with how sophisticated Cory had become. Cory admired confident Ninoy, who she found very exciting. Soon, the two began to date. Then one day, a car hit Nino's car while he was driving Corey and her sister as passengers. Corey and her sister had a brief stay at the hospital, but Ninoy saw it as a sign that they should get married. 
Corey's parents immediately set the date for October 11, 1954, which was 10 days away. They were both 21 years old. The couple ultimately had five children and set about to live their lives. Neither of them could have predicted the path that their lives would take. Ninoy loved politics and Corey, and Corey loved Ninoy. He became the mayor of their town at age 22, a little after they were married. Corazon, who was shy and preferred her privacy, had just had their first child. Suddenly, she was thrust into the limelight and had to learn to be a mother and a political wife at the same time. Initially, Corey was more committed to their marriage than Ninoy's political aspirations, but when she realized that those aspirations were a part of who he was, she learned how to become a fully supportive political wife. Although they did not always agree, Ninoy relied on Corey's wise counsel and judgment. Corey admitted that their journey was less than easy. When he became a senator, Ninoy openly opposed the authoritarian leader, Ferdinand Marcos, who was their president at the time. In 1977, a military tribunal sentenced Ninoy to face the firing squad for subversion, illegal possession of firearms, and murder. While awaiting his execution, Corey had to take tranquilizers to remain strong. She sold their belongings to keep their family financially afloat and consistently prayed and asked God for support during their marriage. During his incarceration, Corey Aquino, a Catholic, drew strength from prayer, attending daily mass, and saying three rosaries a day. Plagued by allergies and breakouts, red spots all over her body, Corey was in despair. I had been through so many difficulties, but at that time, I felt that this was it. I was thinking, if something else happens, I'm just going to give up. But I found that when you think you've reached your limits, then the good Lord gives you just maybe a week of seemingly easy or less difficult days. Then you're re-energized and you can say, okay, I'm ready to go at it again. Over time and with prayer, Corey finally attained a measure of serenity. In the beginning of martial law, my prayer was, Dear Lord, please work it out somehow that Ninoy would be released. But after two years, I was just asking, Dear Lord, help me to accept your will and give me strength and courage to accept all of these trials. All I was asking for, if possible, was maybe some time together. I wasn't even talking about years. The answer to her prayers came in 1979 when Marcos, perhaps calculating that the popular Ninoy was already a spent political force, granted the prisoner a 36-hour furlough to celebrate his 25th wedding anniversary. He had decided to spare him 
because of his popularity with the masses. Two months later, Ninoy was given a three-week furlough for the Christmas season. And the next year, on May 8, 1980, he was allowed to travel to Dallas, Texas for heart surgery. Their family remained exiled in the United States and settled in Boston, Massachusetts for the next three years. There, Ninoy was awarded fellowships at Harvard University for two years and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology for one. Back to her preferred role as wife and mother, a self-described plain housewife, Corey glowed with happiness. But the blissful years did not last. The Philippines was never far from Ninoy's thoughts, and he decided to return in 1983, despite warnings from the government that it could not guarantee his safety. Ninoy received word that anti-Marcos groups wanted him to return to the Philippines and lead their revolution. Since Marcos was gravely ill and the economy was in shambles, Ninoy, without his family, took a chance and flew to the Philippines. Shortly after exiting the plane, he was shot and killed on the tarmac at the Manila airport. While Corey was a housewife, she did not become a desperate housewife. In Boston with the children, Corey was devastated but remained strong. She was grateful that God had answered her prayers and granted her the time together with Ninoy. There was very little time for mourning, she said. I was take my time was taken up by so many necessary activities like giving interviews on television, on radio, and by telephone. There were just too many things to attend to. She and her children returned to the Philippines and buried her husband. Then, partly in honor of her husband, Corey led the movement herself and became the first female president of the Philippines. How's that for girl power? Even when they're under pressure, no matter what time it is, it's always sex o'clock for our final couple. That's why we call our next story, Some Like It Hot. Kira Sedgwick and Kevin Bacon are both actors and their husband and wife. They have a combined net worth of $66 million thanks to their work on 45-plus films each. And Kira inherited $16 million from her dad. But before they amassed their fortune, things were quite different. In the 1970s, Kira was a shy 12-year-old girl who had just enjoyed a matinee. Her brother encouraged her to compliment one of the actors she really liked. That actor was then the 19-year-old Kevin Bacon. She wouldn't see him again until the 1980s when they met on a movie set. At that point, the two 20-somethings were co-starring in the film Lemon Sky. They began to date and it became serious. Then one Christmas Eve, 
It was Kevin's turn to be nervous. He had placed a ring in her stocking. And when Kara discovered it, he was on his knees and shaking. They married on September 4th, 1988, and have maintained their personal co-star status ever since. They have two children, a son, Travis, and a daughter, Sosie. Though their love is enduring, they've lived their fair share of drama, literally and figuratively. No matter what happens, this couple seems to make it work with love, support, humor, and a laser-like focus on their relationship. They firmly believe in giving their relationship top billing before children and careers. They find time to be with each other and enjoy a healthy sex life. Kira admits that she finds Kevin attractive and says that growing older with him is scary and exciting. She sees Kevin as a lover, helpmate, friend, father, and advisor. When Kara struggled getting work, he helped her to understand that while she wasn't a megastar, her skill set would keep her in demand. Since Kira has adopted that perspective, her career has remained on track. But there have been some bumps in the road in their relationship. In 2008, they lost all their pension money in a Ponzi scheme. And the couple passed that for richer or for poorer test with flying colors. Kevin joked that when they first found out, they thought of having sex because at least that was free. Jokes aside, once they thought about it, they realized that whatever happened, they had each other. Both the kids were almost finished with school and they figured they could still work so they'd just weather the storm. Then there was the problem with the TV show that they had been participating in. They discovered that they were distant cousins. The show Finding Your Roots is a series in which famous Americans are given a DNA test to gain insight into their family backgrounds. It was determined that they were ninth cousins and that Kevin shared common ancestors with Brad Pitt and President Obama. While Kira was initially concerned about being Kevin's cousin, he assured her that as long as they weren't first cousins, it didn't matter. This couple even had a long-distance relationship when they were forced to live on opposite coasts due to job assignments. Kevin stayed in New York with the children while Kira filmed The Closer in Los Angeles. While she missed some family events, Kira made the most of her time with her family when she did see them. She believes that what keeps them strong is that they check in with each other regularly and Kevin definitely believes in having a sense of humor. His best advice? Any marriage is hard work. But what I always say is, keep the fights clean and the sex dirty. Duly noted. Ultimately, these three couples face difficult challenges and surprises, yet they remain together. John and Modine learn how to confide in each other and to reinvent themselves. Corey and Nino Aquino stayed strong by praying. Kevin and Kira addressed their issues by not assigning blame and keeping a sense of humor.
Get Unleashed and tell us how you respond to crises on Chronicles Unleashed on Facebook and Instagram or on Twitter at Chronicles, capital U-N-L-E, 1. Join us next week when Chronicles Unleashed presents part three of The Good Book and the Book. Invite your friends and family to come join us and become unleashed. We only get paid when we get played, so hit us up every week. Special thanks to Mixkit and Michael Ramirez C. for the Chronicles Unleashed theme song, Scripted Life. This is Donna Edwards signing off, reminding you that every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. There is hope for us all.